All right, so welcome. Welcome to everyone to the first in our series of Reformation Conversation webinars for 2022, hosted by the Meter Center. My name is Karine Mogg, and I am the director of the Meter Center. Uh, we're very glad to welcome to you. I should tell you, by the way, that uh, 2022 is the Meter Center's 40th anniversary. So we are very excited to be doing these special events during this special year. Our focus today is on religious refugees in the early modern era. Our presenter, Max Schultz, has just completed his monograph titled Strange Brethren, Refugees, Religious Bonds, and Reformation in Frankfurt, 1554 to 1608, which is forthcoming with University of Virginia Press. I looked on Amazon and I put the Amazon link in, um, and it, uh, in the chat, you'll find the Amazon link to his book. On the Amazon page, it says it's going to come out on March 18 of 2022. So you have a few months to wait, but it's coming out soon. I'm going to introduce Max and our two respondents, and then we'll go ahead and start the session with their presentations. Dr. Maximilian Miguel Schultz is Assistant Professor in the History Department at Florida State University. He obtained his PhD from Yale University and has received a Fulbright Fellowship and a Fellowship from the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity. Max, congratulations on your book. We are delighted to have you speaking to us today and introducing its main themes. He is joined by two other experts on early modern religious refugees. Jesse Sponholtz is Professor of History at Washington State University. He obtained his PhD from the University of Iowa in 2004. He is the author of numerous publications, including The Convent of Basel, The Event That Never Was, and The Invention of Tradition, Cambridge University Press, 2017, and Ruptured Lives, Refugee Crises in Historical Perspective, which appeared with Oxford University Press in 2020. Miriam van Veen is Professor of Church History at the Freie Universität in Amsterdam, where she holds the Fenna Diemer Lidboom Chair. She obtained her PhD in 2001, is also the author of numerous works, including several critical editions of Calvin's works for the Opera de Nuo Recognita, published by Drou. She coordinates a major research project on Rhineland exiles and the religious landscape of the Dutch Republic from 1510 to 1618. She and Jesse Sponholtz have, in fact, been partnering on this research and graduate student supervision. So we're so pleased to welcome the three of you. Max, we will start with you with an overview of the main themes of your book. Then Miriam and Jesse will offer responses, observations, and questions based on their research. And then we'll open the session to general discussion via the questions submitted in writing on the chat. Max, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Let me share my screen. I have a a few uh, colorful slides to share here. Okay, can you see both a PowerPoint and my, my head? Okay, excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity and thank you all for being here so much. This is my first book and also my first book talk. So I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled that you came out. Uh, I wanna start with, with many thanks here first, uh, and most notably to the, the professors at Yale who helped me uh, develop uh, my thinking on early modern Europe, uh, especially Carlos Ayer and, and Bruce Gordon and Francesca Trivellato, but also my thanks to the many early modernists, some of you are here today, who helped me by reading portions of this book, 
uh, Jesse Sponeholtz, Miriam Van Bain, uh, Christopher Close, Mark Forster, Duncan Hardy, Ward Holder, Ben Kaplan, David Lutka, Nicholas Muss, and Kenneth Wu. I'm very grateful and uh, grateful to be part of this field that has such supportive colleagues and mentors. And finally, I wanna thank the Meter Center at Calvin University for this opportunity. And uh, I wanna thank its director, uh, Kareen Mogg for setting this up. Thank you so much. Okay, let me start here with a very brief vignette. Uh, so I'll read about a page and a half that I think captures some of the major uh, claims of my book. And then I will go through them uh, and I'll take about 15, 20 minutes if, if that's okay to do so. Okay, uh, so this excerpt is at the beginning of my second chapter. And this is a cold morning, a cold April morning in 1554. There are 24 refugee families who have arrived in Frankfurt and they are led by their minister uh, uh, named Valerand Poulin. And he is from, uh, previously he was a minister in Strasbourg in Glastonbury. So here's the, here's the story. Frankfurt's patrician dominated council may have admitted the refugees, but it remained to be seen how the citizenry and other residents of Frankfurt would react. On the morning of April 19th, 1554, curious Frankfurters walked, and they decided to see for themselves who these newcomers were. They walked to the southeast corner of the city and crowded around the church of the white ladies where Poulin's congregation had gathered to celebrate its first church service in Frankfurt. Spectators that morning would have witnessed a moving scene as Poulin baptized his own son, born while the community of refugees had journeyed to the city. Following this joyful moment, Poulin asked his flock for a communal confession in French. My brothers, let every one of you appear before the face of the Lord with confession of his faults and sins following his heart as follows. Lord God, eternal father, all powerful. We confess and recognize without pretense in front of thy holy majesty that we are sinners and we do recognize our iniquity and corruption, prone to do evil, incapable of any good and in vice we continue and endlessly transgress thy holy commandments. At the climax of the service, Poulain broke bread and invited the congregants forward to eat it as a memorial to Jesus. The bread which we break is in communion in the body of Christ. Poulain had used this liturgy with his community in England and they would have been familiar with the order of service, which called for them to receive the cup from a deacon. The service ended quietly, not with the singing customary at the end of services in Frankfurt's churches, but rather with a simple blessing. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord smile upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord look upon you kindly and give you happiness. For Frankfurters, the novelty of the refugee services was clear. Poulain conducted the service in French and his congregation began to call itself the Church of French Foreigners or simply the French Church of Frankfurt. Notice of these foreigners spread quickly and watching refugee services became a popular pastime for Frankfurters. Poulain and his followers began to complain. On 26 April, 1554, council minutes discuss a grievance from the refugees about sundry unsubtle behaviors disrupting the services. Poulain may have been especially sensitive to potential sources of distraction 
since his sermons were longer than those of other Protestant preachers. He believed a good sermon should be at least one hour long. The Church of the White Ladies, I have an image of it here, where Frankfurters first witnessed the services of the refugees had previously been empty. Originally built in the 13th century as part of a convent for penitential noble women, the Sisters of Mary Magdalene, the convent became contested property in the 1530s when the prioress, along with some, but not all, of the sisters embraced the Reformation. In 1542, the Frankfurt Council declared the convent officially reformed and began appraising its property. And in March of 1554, the council unlocked the church's doors and gave the building over to the refugees. The members of the French Church of Frankfurt delighted in their new temple, even with Frankfurters peering through the church windows. And they wrote letters to other exiled communities advertising the acquisition of the church building. Soon, Poulin's small congregation welcomed hundreds of other Protestant refugees from the Low Countries and other lands. The Church of the White Ladies became a place where ordinary Frankfurters saw the growth of the refugee community firsthand. Okay, you have an image here of this church and I wanna stress here that central to my story is this witnessing of refugee rituals, this encounter between refugees and native Protestants. It was easy to express sympathy for co-religionists abroad, but it proved very difficult living alongside these people and it led to new conflicts and the witnessing of rituals led to new boundaries. My book started really to go back to my driving questions with two questions. How did these people end up here? And the bigger question, what impact did their presence have on the city and what impact did the city have on them? I contend these questions are very important. Refugees are ubiquitous in this, mo in this moment. Refugees were also among the leading reformers, a fact that I don't think is incidental, but rather a reflection of, of exiles power to inspire. So what were my central findings? Let me describe here my findings to these two questions. How did these people end up here? A new affinity, possibly elective, uh, emerged in this period between people very far away that had never seen, seen each other. And that was the case with Poulain and with the city council of Frankfurt. These groups had the same enemies. They hated the Catholic mass, and they hated uh, Emperor Charles's religio-political machinations. I have an image here of Charles triumphant after the Schmalkaldic War. And you see Charles is actually, if you look closely, he's sitting on top of an eagle. And the eagle continues to be a symbol. It's a black eagle there. It's, a, it's the symbol of Frankfurt to this day. And Frankfurt was really at the mercy of the emperor in this time. It was bankrupt from several wars. But Frankfurt did have one distinction, which as a free city, as an as a, as a imperial free city, it had um, this political position where it, it, it had some basically ability to protect these refugees uh, that the, the refugees did not enjoy such a position in the low countries, which was directly under Charles. And these refugees had tremendous uh, skills. And so there was this affinity between these groups and the local elites, the, the council admitted these individuals. One thing that I wanna stress here is that the Frankfurt council, which did the admitting was the least democratic council in the entire empire. Uh, here you have an image in the center of the Frankfurt council building. 
Number one in the center is the, is the council building. And on either side, you have two clubhouses. And only the oligarchs that were members of these clubhouses were allowed to be in power in the council. The guilds had very, very limited power. So basically, this new connection between um, these low country people and the Frankfurt uh, rot resulted in this new community. The Reformation built new connections in addition to causing fractures. The refugees themselves then advertised their position in Frankfurt, aggressively, in fact, saying you, you should come here, especially the English refugees that arrived. And this attracted more and more famous people to Frankfurt, people like uh, John Alasco and John Knox. So the refugees themselves built this refugee world upon arriving. Okay, to the bigger question, the second question here, what impact did the experience of exile have on the city and on the refugees themselves? As I said, it's easy to sympathize with a group that's far away, it's hard to live alongside. Protestant fraternity in Frankfurt did not survive this encounter. Even in a city with a religious uh, constitution based on uh, Martin Bootser's writings that were deliberately uh, ambiguous on certain points about the supper, uh, still, these refugees destabilized the uh, religious landscape uh, in Frankfurt. I'll give you a quote here from the ministers of Frankfurt, and you'll notice their disdain for the refugees and the fact that they have witnessed these rituals firsthand. In 1555, the ministers wrote to the council, Among these people, all manners of pestilence reign. They even bring their young children with them into the church and hold them even though they are unclean, so that there are many bad smells. In 1556, another complaint, this time from the chief minister, Hartman Beyer, he accuses the refugees of errors and fanaticism and included the following facts about Poulain's services. They have other odd opinions about ceremonies and material things because they can suffer no crucifix or image, even for true historical reasons. They conduct the Eucharist to the great offense of many people who see it or hear about it, because with them, several uh, sit around a table uh, upon which there are several large glasses with wine and wafers of bread. They distribute such in their manner, and the communicants take it into their hands themselves, eating it and drinking it in this fashion, just as though it were a binge. This is the German word zech, which I translate as binge here. Over seven years, the refugees go from being fellow Christians to being fanatics, and ultimately they are labeled Calvinists by the city religious authorities. The city instituted a new religious church order based on the Augsburg Confession, the unaltered one. And it changed from being based on Bootser's formula of Concord to the Augsburg Confession. And then the ministers contended it had always been based on this. So there was this rewriting of history as well. This change in the perception of the refugees and the rewriting of the city's church order epitomized the 16th century phenomenon of confessionalism, the effort by reformers to define, regulate, and separate their beliefs and rituals from those of other Christian traditions. And it occurred after the city ministers, led by Bayer, witnessed the refugee Eucharist firsthand. Protestant fraternity did not survive the encounter between refugees and hosts. Now, this uh, intervention that the book makes is 
both sequential and causal in its reappraisal of the Reformation. Uh, Andrew Pedigree, uh, Thomas Brady, and others have described refugees entering the empire and having the misfortune, the word is used, misfortune of arriving at a time of confessional strife. And I say, contend that it's actually um, a different order here. They arrive and the confessional strife follows upon their arrival in German imperial cities. They hardened confessional boundaries and these did not proceed, but rather followed the experience of refugee accommodation. This also speaks to the recent work by uh, Lisbeth Korins on confessional mobility. I contend that at the start, it wasn't really confessional. The refugees bridge these two halves of religious reform in the 16th century. The first half when Luther begins to burn everything down, and the second half when church and secular rulers begin to institutionalize reforms. Well, refugees are a bridge before, between these. They flee the violence set off in the first period, and their arrival precipitates a hardening of confessional boundaries in the second uh, period. A final word has to be said about the refugees themselves. This is not simply a confessional boundary formation inspired and driven by the city authorities. The refugees themselves begin to distinguish their own communities' boundaries from this experience of exile, famously of the case of the English fight over the prayer book. But I wanted to go quickly to Lasco's church order that was published in Frankfurt. Lasco famously spent the winter of 1553, 1554, sailing around the North Sea with his flock, cruelly being denied admission to these German cities, the, the, the Hanseatic cities and Denmark. And the famous account of this by Utenhoven compares their experience this experience of St. Stephen being uh, stoned in, in Jerusalem. And when uh, Lasco arrives in Frankfurt and publishes his church order, he speaks about the Lutheran clergy he so detests and says the following, it would not be astonishing if they should be called Lutheropapists. Lasco himself, and in many parts of, of, of his church order, has decided these Lutherans are not in their right mind. Uh, so those are my major interventions. I could also speak, if you like, about the book's uh, take on toleration. Uh, looking at refugee memoirs, I find that they have a very different understanding or appreciation of some of the informal modes of toleration that they are subjected to. Looking at the words of people who left Frankfurt once Frankfurt becomes more restricted, you see a clear dissatisfaction with informal modes of worship, like private worship and Auslau. The demands of these refugees actually look remarkably similar to those of refugees today. Admission to citizenship, economic opportunity, and formal legal protection of religious services. The possibility of worship mattered naturally, but so too did the right to worship publicly. Informal toleration did not satisfy many of these people. I will uh, stop there. Those are some of the major findings of the book. Uh, oh, I had them written down here. So Reformation created new affinities alongside the animosities. Human displacement led to confessional boundary formation and informal modes of toleration did not satisfy most religious refugees. Uh, so I, I should have had that slide up there. Those are my major findings. I look forward to your comments.
and I will end there. Thank you so much. That's great, Max. If you'll go ahead and stop share, that'll be good. So we get everybody's heads back in the picture as it were. There we go. Look at that. All right. So at this point, um, Miriam, do you want to go next? Uh, yes, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Karine. Uh, thanks for organizing this. And um, yeah, uh, it's strange to be in the seminar because I feel so at home at the Meter Center. So it's strange to be at a distance uh, because I recall with a lot of pleasure my own uh, fellowship in uh, Grand Rapids, like many of us do, I think. Uh, and there's a second reason why I really love to uh, be present this European evening because it allowed me to uh, read Mark's book before uh, it is published. And that was a pleasure. It is a very readable book and I enjoyed reading it. Uh, so that was also uh, nice. But now my comments. Um, the question of how early modern humans dealt with religious diversity has long puzzled historians. After the Reformation, Europeans were confronted with religious diversity in their own homes for the first time in their living memory. They barely knew how to deal with this new phenomenon. Many strove for a return to the old order and for a restoration of the medieval conquered. The study of towns and villages at this time enables the historian to describe in detail how new equilibriums arose. These local histories show how people found new ways to live together despite religious tensions and how they often perpetuated the fiction of religious unity despite diversity. Recently, Three studies were published that paid extensive attention to these questions in Frankfurt. Peter Gorter wrote a book about the Dutch refugee community in Frankfurt, comparing it to those in Aachen and Cologne. Corina Ehlers wrote about the dispute between Lutherans and Reformed in Frankfurt in her book about second sacramentarian controversy. And Mark Schultz wrote about the French, English, and Dutch refugee communities in Frankfurt. Marx thus contributes to an important debate in historiography, namely the debate about religious tolerance. It will be clear that such historical research is also relevant for contemporary debates. It is interesting to compare these three studies because the picture that the three authors have of, these, of the refugee community in Frankfurt and of the actions of the Lutherans in the city differs and even contradicts each other. Ehlers and Gorter uh, published their books last year and I suppose that Max didn't have the opportunity to use them. But still, the question of where the difference in perspective comes from is, I think, relevant. Roughly speaking, the difference comes down to the fact that, according to Peter Gorter, the Reformed only gradually learned to compromise with their environment. And due to the, their lack of ability to adapt, they ran into problems in the first years of their existence. 
His sources include Calvin's letters, in which Calvin indeed tells the reform in Frankfurt that their problems are largely their own fault. According to Peter Gorter, the reformed wanted too much. In a time when formal B-confessionalism was exceptional, they demanded, the reform demanded their own church building with their own church services, their own consistor, consistory and everything. Corina Ehlers emphatically treats conflicts in Frankfurt as part of the second sacramentarian controversy, which is also the subject of her book. She points out that Valeran Poulin, the minister to whom Frankfurt initially gave permission to use the church for French church services, was closer to Lutheran sacramental doctrine than Alasco who was more Zwinglian oriented in his understanding of the Lord's Supper. The gap between Alasco and his Lutheran hosts was simply bigger than the gap between Poulin and his hosts. In contrast to Gorter and Ehler, who emphasized the role of migrants' leaders in their inability to develop a successful compromise, Schultz puts more emphasis on the refugees as passive victims of growing Lutheran intolerance. The difference between these three authors show that details matter. In all my appreciation for Mark Schultz's book, I think that this is a weak spot. One example. Mark Schultz states that under the leadership of Alasco, a large group of Dutch people went from London to Frankfurt. He refers, among other things, to the report by Jan Utenhoven about the journey of the group of reformed believers who fled England after Mary came to the English throne. However, he doesn't use the critical edition of Utenhoven's report. But this critical edition also provides the reader with information about exactly who fled from England to initially Denmark in 1553. The Danes registered which people were on board of these ships. Comparison of these lists of names, the London membership lists and the Frankfurt membership lists shows that only three people came from London to Frankfurt, Alasco, Micron, and Datein. When Alasco arrived in Frankfurt via Emden, his health was bad. If Kelvin's reports are to be believed, he was capable of little. The question is therefore whether Alasco played such an important role in the refugee community in Frankfurt. In any case, Kelvin increasingly had his doubts about the performance of Alasco and his group. He considered Alasco too militant and also felt that it was Alasco's fault that the dispute with Johannes Brenz had ended in a defeat for the reformed. Kelvin therefore refused to write a dedication to Utenhoven's book about the journey of the refugees. Utenhoven's book would, according to Calvin, reopen old wounds. The fortunes of Utenhoven and Alasco and Calvin's criticism are, I think, thought-provoking 
is the image that are reformed in Frankfurt were victims of Lutheran fanaticism, correct? As said, details matter because they can change the image of history. This, my own focus on details, my, my own university pro professor taught me to start with reading footnotes, so that's really my habit. But my own focus on details does not alter the fact that Max Scholz's book is very worth reading. The readability of his book contributes in no small measure to this. He also shows how personal contacts and networks mattered to the search for ways of religious coexistence. His description of the support of, for the reformed within the different layers of Frankfurt's population is also worthwhile. He shows that representatives of the lower social strata in the city had the most difficulty with the reformed. This calls for further research into the role of social factors in the conflict between reformed and Lutherans in Frankfurt. In short, in short, Max Scholz wrote a valuable and thought-provoking book about the difficult coexistence of Reformed and Lutherans in Frankfurt. In the book, he also gives valuable impetus for further research. Thank you so much, Miriam. I really appreciate those comments. Uh, we'll have a discussion in a moment, but let's hear next from Jesse. Thank you so much, Corrine. It's uh, so great to see so many uh, friends and colleagues, including uh, Miriam, my longtime collaborator, and Max, of course. Um, and, and thanks, Corrine, for putting this, this session, all these sessions together. I've, I've, I've really been enjoying them. Um, Max's book appears amid a rise in interest in refugees and migration, as well as toleration and coexistence in early modern history. A generation ago, historians still focused on Eurocentric celebrations of the rise of toleration in the West. Since then, scholars have increasingly questioned such triumphalist narratives. Despite having a legal and intellectual frameworks that, that were some of the most intolerant in world history, revisionists, including myself, have argued that ordinary pre-modern Europeans found quotidian ways to coexist. In a 2019 essay, Max challenged this revisionist scholarship for undervaluing the disillusionment of religious minorities and having to endure the humiliations of underground worship. He just uh, he, he summarized some of that for us a few minutes ago. In Strange Brethren, um, Schultz is less forceful in his challenge, but it's still there. He pushes rather towards an emic framework, stressing dissenters' unhappiness with being forced to worship privately, rather than those scholars such as myself who examine the practices of looking the other way at violations of, illegal, um, of intolerant legal and intellectual frameworks. Now, Frankfurt is a helpful choice for such a study because the debates taking place between reformed migrants and Lutherans were so intertwined with questions emerging across the Holy Roman Empire about how to apply the Peace of Augsburg, which was signed the year after they arrived. What Schultz does so well in this book is to combine the local and the imperial into a single narrative through which Lutherans and reformed Protestants went, went from imagining themselves as co-religionists with a common enemy in Rome to seeing themselves as religious competitors. And Schultz is telling this dialectical process was rooted not just in theological differences and imperial law, but also in personalities. In my view, this is the most important contribution of this work. Consider two alternatives, older alternatives than the one, Schilling, than the one Mir Miriam raised. 
Heinz Schilling's 1972 study, Hundred, covered reformed migrants in Frankfurt extensively. Frank Schilling's study includes almost no individuals, but rather treats people only in terms of their socioeconomic, ethnic, or confessional categories that we use to describe them. Schilling, um, an important study, a 1987 essay by Andrew Pedigree helpfully points these debates and puts these debates in context of the growing Lutheran reform splits, recognizing the important agency of the Walloon pastor Valerian Poulin who had in Frankfurt in cementing the reformed Lutheran divide. What Schultz adds is the personal stories of hatred, friendship, and patronage that shape these outcomes. In Strange Brethren, we learn about a chance meeting between Poulin and the Frankfurt patrician Klaus Brom in Cologne the role of the Glauberg family as patrons of the refugees, and the exasperation of the city pastor Hatman Baya, who became convinced that the refugees had sold him a bill of goods. He also argues the city council did not close the city's, the refugees church in 1561 because patricians had acceded to the xenophobia of guilds or the doctrinaire insistence of city pastors, as previous scholars have suggested, and said the refugees' own fractious internecine disputes and disorderly behavior cost him the support of the Glauberg family, whose protection it turns out they had been so dependent on. But the outcome of the stranger stay in the city can also be explained, I think, by the, the increasing tendency across the empire following the signing of the Peace of Augsburg to develop clear rules locally for what it meant to adhere to the Augsburg Confession. In many cities, magistrates early on adopted local statements of faith that tied orthodoxy to their political authority, effectively claiming their version to adhere to the Augsburg Confession. This only led to conflicts, mostly about Eucharistic theology. Debates also sparked about which version or versions of the Augsburg Confession could be used to measure adherence. Frankfurt saw both sets of disputes. After seven years of such squabbles, magistrates determined once and for all that only signing the 1530 Invariata could count. Seen in that light, the conflicts in Frankfurt were not causing changes in larger Reformation narratives, but symptoms of larger imperial questions set in motion by the diplomats who wrote the Peace of Augsburg, as well as the diplomats in earlier, um, earlier discussions, which were really not solved until the Thirty Years' War. The strangers did have agency, as Max shows, but they use it to argue that they adhered to the Augsburg Confession using all sorts of arguments based on complicated logic that, in the end, magistrates in Frankfurt simply would not accept. Max focuses heavily on the question of the legality and publicness of worship, but I, I want to be precise here. They were not being barred public worship. They were being barred from operating a church that followed a different theological and liturgical norms as the city churches. From a 16th century perspective, that was pretty standard practice. And when Peter Stathain and his band of disgruntled refugees left Frankfurt and took the reins in Frankenthal in 1562, they demanded the same from newcomers to their town. Still, Max does provide useful insights into the closing of the Strangers Church, the white city in Frankfurt. But there are trade-offs to Max's story. By focusing centrally on the questions of legality and publicness of reformed worship, he puts less emphasis, he puts emphasis, uh, less emphasis on the period between 1562 and the 1590s. But starting in 1570, reformed strangers reorganized a church that offered sermons, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline according to reformed standards. This private house church was not just a shadowy secret church like the underground reformed church in Catholic Cologne, for example. The reformed church continued to, the reformed continued to baptize their children and marry in Frankfurt city churches without apparently any fuss. The pastor was also known to magistrates and the reformed wrote frequent petitions, um, meaning that they stayed on the magistrates radar. Max devotes relatively little attention to the 1570s and 80s, the period when the, in, this informal toleration of a house church was taking place. 
he picks back up his attention in the 1590s when pressure on the reform increased again until 1597 when a group moved to Neue Hanau, a settlement up the, Rhine, the Main River, specifically built to lure Frankfurt's reformed strangers to the lands of the Count of Hanau Munzenberg. After Frankfurt's magistrates realized their mistake, they, they petitioned, their, they, they permitted the construction of a new reformed chapel outside the city gates. Schultz ends his book in 1608 when the new church was burned to the ground, probably arson by hostile Lutherans. Magistrates would not allow reformed rites to public worship again until 1787. But looking beyond the law, I think also proves instructive. Why might magistrates have looked the other way to strangers' violation of city law for so long? When we look at the question through another lens, the story looks rather different. Demographically, Frankfurt's reformed population looked less like vulnerable refugees and somewhat more like a foreign expatriate community. I've only studied the Dutch speakers, but here I think the story is telling. The vast majority came from a handful of large trade cities in Brabant and Flanders, like Antwerp and Ghent. Dutch merchants in Frankfurt were some of the wealthiest residents in the city, with extensive international connections throughout the German-speaking lands to the Low Countries and beyond. These merchants already had long-standing ties to Frankfurt and continued to import goods on wagons arriving from Antwerp loaded with sugar, spices, laces, embroidery, and belts. Many others were educated professionals like lawyers, printers, and doctors. Almost a third were weavers in the so-called new draperies. In fact, the prospect of introducing new weaving industries for helping was, had helped convince magistrates to welcome Poulin's congregation in the first place. There's good evidence that it worked. Frankfurt's clothing-related industries spiked with the arrival of the migrants. The relative wealth of Dutch reformed in Frankfurt makes the comparison between them and the Dutch refugees in, Frank, uh, in Basel, which I wrote my first book on, a bit unfair. Basel's refugees were far more diverse in background. They came from all across the low countries and they faced far greater poverty. But Frankfurt's strangers were no shrinking violets huddled in back alleys. They had to be discreet about violating city law, but we should not necessarily take their rhetoric about the frequent petitions asking to have their church reopened as transparent windows into the, 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 the entire situation. Indeed, we might reflect on their confidence at being willing to write such petitions without fear of reprisal. Frankfurt's residents were, were also used to strangers of different, different faiths within their walls. The city hosted the largest Jewish community in, in, in the empire after all. Religious worship of the city's small Catholic community was guaranteed by the emperor. The city also saw regularly uh, Catholic dignitaries and once a year for three weeks, it played host to the largest trade fair in Europe. Frankfurt's survival depended on hosting strangers, including people of different faiths, even if that prospect disturbed uh, many of them. They remained antithetical to religious dissent, completely intolerant, of course, but these points are also helpful for contextualizing how they might come to look past the illegal worship of wealthy reformed strangers. Even after the church burning of 1608, Frankfurt's reformed community did not disappear. During the Fetmilk uprising in 1614, which saw pogroms against Frankfurt's Jewish community, rebels even praised reformed strangers for contributing for so long to their community. Johannes Müller has described the flourishing of the strangers community through the 17th century when they became important intellectual figures, translating religious literature and becoming brokers of spiritualism, Kabbalism, and pietism in works that were read by people in, of a wide variety of faiths across Europe. Thus, Max usefully helps us shift, uh, understand shifts in religious policy in Frankfurt, especially by highlighting the patronage that proved critical to protecting reformed worship. He also usefully highlights the dangers that awaited religious minorities when they did not tend to the reputation as obedient and peaceable, lest they lose that patronage. But I, for one, remain committed to looking beyond the law as well to understand how societies 
and Reformation in Europe survived the perilous implications of their own intolerance. Thank you. Thank you so much, both to Jesse and Miriam. Max, um, why don't you take a few minutes and respond to any of the points that you might want to respond to from Miriam and from Jesse? Thank you both so much for, for, for the comments and, and the support there. Uh, Miriam, the first thing I'll say is I need to email you her two other books because I have not had a chance to read them and I, and I need to do so immediately. Uh, so I expect a follow-up uh, email there. I think that there, um, I'll take on this issue of the refugees being, I think, passive victims or, or shrinking violence. I think one of you used one phrasing in, in one uh, the other, they are indisputably uh, trouble for Frankfurt. Uh, and this is not simply because, you know, the Frankfurt magic, not simply because the Frankfurt's ministers dislike their rituals. Uh, we can explain why certain ministers dislike them relatively easily. Uh, the more complicated question is why the city council, which has complete control over the church in the early period, the churches, why the city council turns against them. And there we come to uh, what Jesse uh, mentioned, this fractious infighting. The refugees can't get along with themselves. Uh, I contend that the democratic nature of their church institutions make it very difficult for them to incorporate newcomers. So as the refugee communities grow, they have more and more conflicts internal conflicts, internal conflicts like the famous Knox conflict that results with the publication of something critical of the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, conflicts uh, between the, you know, between Poulin and basically everybody. Um, uh, and, and, and these conflicts result in publications. Uh, they result in publications that embarrass Frankfurt and begin to convince the, the, the rot, because the rot also has people on it they don't really listen to the ministers at all. Um, but the Rat does not like these people having this endless infight. So far from being shrinking violets they, they're, they're, or, or, or passive victims, they can't get their own institutions to be quiet, basically, and their own uh, members to be quiet. Uh, Lasco's an interesting case. Uh, and Miriam, you're, you're, you're quite right to bring up the context of, of his arrival. It, the major moment with Lasco is the publication of his church order, which you know he could, in, in some ways, he could have been dead and it still would have had a major impact. Um, I, this was a a disaster in the eyes of the Lutheran ministers. You know, Poulin was a was a something of a nobody, and and, and you know Lasco was 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 more prominent and more of a of a known kind of. I think you use the word uh, militant, and 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 I think that's accurate. And his forma acratio was actually, um, its preface is, is, is not only polemic, it's, it's sardonic. And it's very, um, uh, you know, it's kind of shocking that this would be published in a city with Lutheran uh, church institutions, well, whatever, you know, whatever that means, uh, uh, with, with the current ministers that it had. And this was shocking to them that, you know, so that's where I get this reception on the part of the ministers seeing Lasco's work being published and their kind of frustration at this. And then when they petition the council and say, you got to stop these people from publishing, the council bans all publication, even the ministers. So that doesn't, you know, it doesn't 
it doesn't just shut up the, the refugees. So I think that there is um, definitely, and I probably should stress that more, there is trouble coming from the refugee communities. This is not purely an act of, um, this is not merely a mean lack of generosity on the part of the German uh, indigenous Protestants. Um, Jesse, I know that we, we, we come back to this issue of public worship because in some ways I'm torn. Uh, I don't I don't necessarily agree with the disposition of a lot of toleration literature, but I have to contend it is more interesting than simply saying there was it was bad back then. That's not a particularly interesting position. I, I concede that. I think that the, the thing I'll bring up here is that I do want to stress the law. I want to deliberately stress uh, the law, and that's something that um, uh, I think is important. I think these petitions do matter, and I think they matter also because uh, it is dangerous. In the case of Frankfurt, one of the petitioners is imprisoned in St. Catherine's Tower for his petition. Um, so there is a boldness to these petitions, although you're right, the, the, the frequency of them does suggest that maybe this is, you know, uh, not completely disallowed. But I uh, possibly in a precipitous uh, mindset, I looked back at these people and I thought, you know, I, I saw them, they, they, they wanted legal protection. And their position in Frankfurt was a, a product of the, the intricacies of imperial law. Frankfurt could protect them because of its legal position in the empire in a way that Lille or Arras could not. And uh, so I think that these legal uh, minutiae really, really do matter. But I, I, do, I do take your point, especially the fact that they are continuing with this, with this house church. However, they were dissatisfied with the fact that it wasn't allowed a steeple. And so you can look at this in two ways when you look back on this, you can say, my goodness, they have this wonderful religious life, vibrant religious life, they're baptizing and they're uh, grousing about a steeple. But in another side of it, you can look back and say, you know, these people weren't able to actually express their religiosity in, in the way that they expected. Um, and they, they felt they were done a disservice by the Lutherans who were kind of rewriting the history by saying that we had always been uh, adherents to the invariata. Um, I, I, I don't know if that addresses your, your, the two of yours points, which are very well uh, made and well taken. So thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. So what we'll do is now everyone else who wants to ask questions, you start putting your questions in the chat. Uh, meanwhile, I just have a couple of observations. Um, I've done some work on the uh, later uh, exiles from England, and there's something about these people who leave their places because they cannot find a compromise or they, they're under such pressure that they have to leave. They are remarkably quarrelsome folks. I mean, these refugees, whether they're the, the exiles in the Netherlands who come out of England or Valérien Poulain and his gang um, or Knox and his friends, they are remarkably quarrelsome folks. They have a hard time. And I think there's something about having been forced out that le leads people to sort of almost focus, like laser focus on what I stand for and what I don't stand for. And it almost leads to this innate fractiousness, it seems. I mean, you don't find too many exile groups that are sweetness and light. They are just <laughs> remarkably quarrelsome people. And the other point that I always sort of come back to is 
especially from reading uh, the, the extract you sent me, Max, which was so helpful. Um, it seems to me that the presence of these reformed folks in Frankfurt actually helped or facilitated the Frankfurt authorities, the pastors especially, um, sense of who they were. In other words, by having the other in your midst, you are all of a sudden more keen to define and determine who it is that you are. Does that make sense from what you've researched? Yeah, yes, I this innate fractiousness, also an intolerance. I know uh, uh, Jesse pointed out at one point that Dateinus then probably becomes one of the most intolerant people in, uh, in all of uh, in, in, this, in this context when he's in any position of, of authority. Um, the other thing about the English and about these refugees in general is that they are very well connected with uh, uh, correspondence with their with their homes, their homelands, mm -hmm. and their um, uh, fractiousness or their intensity responds to events in their homelands. And you see that with the English because while they're there, you know Hooper is executed, um, and then you know Cranmer is is is. is is languishing in prison, and you know Hooper's wife is is, is in Frankfurt, and so the actual events in England um, inspire certain actions in Frankfurt. So Hooper's kind of you know uh, allies uh, they become they double down on rejecting the prayer book when he's uh, executed, but then shortly thereafter you know Cranmer's ex executed, and so then th that faction kind of um, you know refugees are. The, the experience, I think, um, does inspire a certain uh, intensity, but it also they're very cognizant of what's, these refugees are very cognizant of what's going on in their homelands, and um, they respond to those, those stimuli. Absolutely. All right, questions are starting to come in, so I'm going to read you the chat so you get them. So from Sam Ha, who's a graduate student at Calvin Seminary. Thank you very much for a very fascinating and informative session. I have a quick question. It seems that the liturgical and thus religious conflict between the refugee community and the city council of Frankfurt is often highlighted. That is very, hang on, I'm gonna lose my line here. That is very interesting, but were there other key religious ideas that they disagreed on? I've often found that exiled Protestant thinkers have emphasized certain concepts. And I was wondering whether a similar thing happened for the refugees in Frankfurt, or was the liturgical disagreement an overly dominant issue, so much so that other issues are not explicitly recorded? Does that make sense? Yes, it, it, it does. Um, you know, this is the classic thing. I'm, I'm, I, I have more details about this somewhere in my brain that and I'm happy to also address this more in an, uh, in, in an email at the moment the liturgical issues are as forward in my brain as they were with the people back then. They were paramount. They were uh, really, in, in, they were in many ways the issue, but they also reflected a flawed Christology. Mm -hmm. uh, the liturgical issues reflected a, 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 a malformed theology and a misunderstanding of, um, of, of things. And uh, it was principally the, the supper, the celebration of the supper. Um, but you also had issues about um, at burials and at baptisms. There were there were issues about you know could you process behind a, a cross at, when going to a burial? Um, how in what type of container someone should be baptized? There were yeah I mean I, 
I'm trying to think of non-liturgical issues at the moment, but the, but they were really the they were really paramount. Uh, Miriam and Jesse, perhaps you could save me here and, and speak to this a, a, a little was, bit. From, I was from wondering that. actually yeah. whether Jesse and Miriam have any other ideas. I I, I my first re uh, response is that I, I think among themselves, uh, the these migrants were were debating a whole range of theological and liturgical issues, um, and that the the question of the of the, the supper and of the and the, the presence really became central and in, in my mind it really became central uh, starting in September 1555 because that's when the when Hotman Baya starts pressing the piece of Al he starts pressing the question of the of the Augsburg confession and, and starts pressing the question of the what the supper looks like. He sees it as Max described and he starts making this an issue. So in my mind it, it's not so much that that the liturgical that liturgical question was what was was um, critical to the refugees as such, but that the, the the constitutional situation and the pressure from the city pastors forced that question really to be the central one of the so it produced lots more paper, um, but but among themselves they had a range of different different uh, theological views. Mm -hmm. Mary, any sense any sense from you of other theological issues beyond the liturgical ones that sort of emerge in no, these communities? No, and I would say that that within a very short time they became part of that second sacramentarian uh, controversy mm -hmm. and I hesitate to say something about it because I know that Amy Nelson Burnett is also there who knows far more about this but uh, the focus I think was really on that controversy uh, and uh, it might be important to bear in mind that Alaska was very much a key player in that uh, controversy and was very much an outspoken person as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what is important in I think that that whole debate in Frankfurt is that Frankfurt had started its reformation with uh, Martin Butzer, but uh, Alasco had severely criticized Butzer because of his readiness to uh, compromise. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a sort of clash between Alasco and uh, Frankfurt even before he arrived. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I can, right. think, I can yeah. think just very quickly, yeah. I can think of one other major issue and there were ecclesiology, they were, the ecclesiology was debated, how you should structure the church was a major issue that divided them. You know, how, the elections, how, how, how you elect the, the 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 members of the hierarchy and then also the the political aspect of the ecclesiology who has the right to unlock and open the churches so i think there were ecclesiological differences in addition to liturgical well that that ties up nicely with our next question which is from amanda urich she says you suggest that integration implies citizenship beyond the religious tensions that you emphasize would you say more about legal conflicts over citizenship guild membership and the role of lesser members in both communities and exacerbating tensions spawned perhaps by economic issues. Okay, so that's, that's a fantastic question because these newcomers, uh, they did um, present problems for the guilds. Uh, they, their work was, first of all, an obvious threat. It was, it was kind of more cutting edge uh, uh, weaving, um, but their products were exempt from certain guild regulations. Uh, and this, there's a debate over how resented this was, uh, specifically in Frankfurt's con context among the kind of uh, 
uh, Heimat uh, Historica, there's, there's a debate about this because some actually contend that the guilds benefited still from these people economically being present. Um, but the, the guild issue was a real one. Guilds did not like having these people here. The guilds did not ha have much say on the council though. They were reserved only the third bench and they were all, and the guild members who were on the council were appointed by the, by the, by the, um, the oligarchs. Um, they, the citizenship issue was a big one. They were initially allowed to apply for citizenship. This was, this was restricted over time, even into the 18th century when marrying a, a, a woman from Frankfurt would not get you in anymore. So this was restricted uh, certainly over time. And uh, member lesser role of lesser members in both communities. Um, one of the issues that the refugees have are the, are the troublesome Anabaptists that somehow are always amongst them. Uh, there are claims that they are harboring Anabaptists uh, from the start, and there seems to be some validity to that claim. Um, there are members of these communities who who appear to have been Anabaptists, and that is a major a major problem for 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 the communities as a whole and their independence. Max, do you happen to know whether to get citizenship involved paying a fee in Frankfurt? Yes, there was a citizenship fee. Because that's a there very was... nice fundraiser for most city governments. Yeah. They like that. I mean, Geneva, a... <laughs> that's exactly what happens. Like, oh, look, newcomers, yay, money. And then, oops, <laughs> the electorate. There's, there's a citizenship fee, and there are also fees for moving property into and out of the city. Okay. So they really like that as well, because these people, if they bring in a tremendous amount of stock and then, and then bring it out, that they can, they can charge that too. So another question from Amanda, how does the demand for a steeple speak to the desire for membership in the body politic as well as freedom of worship? That's a very good question. Um, that is a very good question. Uh, the, Into the 18th century, and uh, uh, Soliday has worked on this um, in, in a work from uh, several decades ago. Into the 18th century, there are campaigns to both get the public worship, but also to be admitted to the citizenry. Uh, this is an issue um, famously into Goethe's day when his writing tutor can't, can't be in the citizenry, is not eligible for uh, this or membership in the guilds because um, he's performed. So this initial uh, restriction on refugee community worship hardens into permanent second-class citizenship for members of the reformed uh, community. And it is contested into the 18th century. Um, and, and yeah, my epilogue deals with that, with, with that a little bit, but basically at the end of the, at the, end of the 18th century is finally, sorry, yeah, 18th century, at the end of the 18th century, finally, this is relaxed. Um, but it's from external forces, ultimately not Frankfurt kind of seeing the light. Uh, well, to some extent, it's basically Hamburg. Ha Hamburg ultimately admits uh, these, the reform and Hamburg is supposedly the Lutheran city, the one that's the harshest on these people. And it relents before Frankfurt and that spires cases that eventually compel Frankfurt to um, allow these people into the citizenry. Okay, thank you. A question from Amy Burnett. Oh, sorry, I yeah, I, I want to add something about this question about citizenship, if I could. Um, uh, I recently compared um, Vesel, citizen, strangers who became citizens in Vesel and, and in Frankfurt. Uh, 
Um, and it, and the, the, the comparison actually proved, um, proved useful in a way because in, in Frankfurt, they seem to be taking citizenship based on pressure pressures within Frankfurt. So it, based on internal, like the timing of it has to do with pressures they're getting from the city government um, to, 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 to take on citizenship. In Wesel, they, they don't have the same pressures and they're taking citizenship based on events back home. Like when their home gets taken over by the Spanish, they take citizenship. So they're, they're much more looking from Wesel, which is much closer to the Netherlands, of course, they're, they're much more looking toward events. So measuring citizenship as a way of assimilation I think across different communities might not be, it might be apples and oranges in some kinds of cases. Um, same is true with guilds. Not all guilds in Frankfurt had the same attitude toward the strangers. Some of the guilds were particularly hostile to the strangers because it posed economic challenges to them. Others were happy enough to have uh, strangers as members of their guilds without any apparent problem. But the other question about citizenship is that the Flemish and Brabantine cities had something called Bauterportschap, which is a citizenship for people who live elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So they might have formerly been an, a citizen of Antwerp, but they have a, they, they still remain, retain, they're still citizens of Antwerp, but they live in Frankfurt. And many of the strangers in Frankfurt wouldn't want to give up their, their, their bow to port shop because they gave them privileges for their, for their factors in Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so would, would be hesitant to want to integrate, not because they're not integrated into Frankfurt civic community, but because there's a financial interest in keeping their factors in, and, and business in Frankfurt in Antwerp. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. All right, uh, question from Amy Burnett. I'm intrigued by the mention of the role of personal networks. Could you say something more about how the refugees used competing networks, whether within the city or with people outside Frankfurt? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Uh, the, um how they use competing networks. I mean, the, 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 the nexus for a lot of these networks is the Frankfurt um, City Council, which, is, which has um, students of Melanchthon on it, uh, who, it, it, who basically are in conversation with a lot of individuals like Calvin. And so basically that is in some ways the, the in, the hook that allows them to get into Frankfurt are these um, uh, initial groups. Um, those groups protect them for an extended period of time. I'm, I'm trying to think about uh, when you say the conflict between you mean that, that somehow this conflict is beneficial to the to the to the community. Um, it says competing networks. Amy, do you want to competition? You want to just unmute yourself and clarify? I'm assuming. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm assuming that there were a couple different groups, and that each group had its own web of supporters. Yes. Um, and so to what extent are they, are, are each of these groups internal or looking outside? I mean, mentioning, um, you know, Poulan not getting along with Calvin, for instance, is, is one example. Uh, how do these networks function? You know, that's a, a, you know, I immediately thought of an example now that you, you, you said that, which is the difference between the English network and the network that the English are using uh, in Frankfurt and the, the network that brought Poulan there because Basically, as the English arrive, they have they 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 have their own network that's based around um, Strasbourg, the Strasbourg English community, which has all the high you know the highest you know bishop from from the Church of England is there, and um, they can they they use that uh, network both to recruit people, um, but at the same time, when Strasbourg looks to change the rituals in Frankfurt, 
then they call upon basically Poulin's, you know, French uh, network, and they say, well, no, actually, we're beholden to the deal that he negotiated here. So they kind of play between these two, uh, with, of course, the the English in and what's the name of the bishop in, in Strasbourg, the English bishop that is exiled to Strasbourg. But ultimately, um, uh, they play the French network off of this, and they use the the, the, the agreement that Poulain has negotiated as their response to the English demand that they institute the prayer book. Mm -hmm. So then Ward Holder follows up. He says, following up on Amy's question about personal networks, did the religious refugees accept any direction from identifiable reformed leaders outside their number? And what would that have looked like? Uh, they do accept direction on certain issues from Calvin. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, they, in the, in, in the late 16th century, they are actively soliciting advice and permission from uh, both from major uh, figures and also from sister communities in places like Prokintal. And they're saying, um, is it permissible to attend a, a, you know, a, a Lutheran baptism? Is it permissible, you know, our great patron so-and-so Glauberg has died, may I go to his burial? Um, and so they specifically solicit uh, advice from external communities. They also uh, do, much like the Geneva consistory, they look for, um, with marriages, it becomes important to consult with other communities. Uh, when getting new ministers, it's important to have recommendations. And that's in the late 16th century. Earlier, uh, Calvin is important in actually settling the conflict to some degree amongst the French in Frankfurt, when Poulain is too heavy handed and basically controls the elections for elders. Eventually, Calvin is brought in to mediate. Uh, and um, and, 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 and Calvin, not only when he, when he arrives there, Calvin is hosted by the most prominent members of the Roth. So, you know, Calvinism is a major figure that is listened to both by the refugee communities and by actually certain members on the city council. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So one theme you haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but it does uh, appear in, in the sections I read of your book, is about the consistory and the work of the consistor, reform consistories in Frankfurt. Um, first, can you tell us a little bit about the records that have survived from these consistories? Do we have much in terms of their minutes and such? Yes, the records were not housed at the Frankfurt Archive, so they survived, is the short answer. Um, the, uh, the Dutch records have been, the first volume has been uh, published uh, recently, um, but you have, yeah, you have the 16th century Dutch consistory records, which become, in, which become separate from the, the French in 1571. You have the French records um, and you also have very good uh, uh, 19th century uh, uh, kind of uh, versions of the, of the French records. Uh, it's one, it, it basically the, the, the two groups split formally in, in 1570 or is it 71? Um, in the <laughs> early, sorry? 71. 71. Uh, it's in, uh, it's in 71 that the, the, the Dutch form their own consistory. And the consistory records are incredibly rich in Frankfurt. Um, as the modern editor of the Dutch uh, one said, this, the, the, these are consistory records that record almost every aspect of, of, of life in this community. Uh, they go well beyond uh, re religious matters. Um, and they describe all kinds, of, all kinds of things. And they show a, a very sincere effort both to um, arbitrate conflict 
uh, and and they and they confirm they are very similar to what you know the Geneva consistory uh, is according to you know Kingdon and, and and that work, but they also respond to the demands of the times. So that's a, a way I want to basically stress that these are not the the, the heavy-handed authority, religious police, they are specifically responding to demands of congregants, um, both in their structure, how many offices there should be for, you know, when the election should be and when the supper should be. Uh, they record in many cases that the congregants are asking for this, the congregants are asking for that. Um, so there seems to be a genuine uh, uh, response to the demands of the actual congregations. They're very, very rich sources, yes. Is there anything in those uh, consistory records or elsewhere about poor relief for these communities? Yes, they record poor relief and they record who goes to the poor and they record the examinations of the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, so the poor must be examined uh, before they can get poor relief. And um, that, is, that, is a, a, that is absolutely in their message. And each community, each religious community looks after their own poor, or if you're poor and reformed, yeah. can you tap into Lutheran support or no? The Dutch break off in 1571 specifically to be able to distribute alms on their own. Mm -hmm. And that has various financial uh, roots, but basically th that already expresses that these consistories have as one of their, their, their chief tasks, the distribution of alms to their community, by which it means that people coming from kind of the same towns in the Low Countries. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really, that's really the, the major task. Frankfurt repeatedly says that they're not, uh, they, 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 um, they're not eligible for alms from the city. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, as Jesse pointed out, that is, that is a legal stipulation. I'm not sure how much that was, how, how, how held to that was. Thank you. I, I, I can add to this, I think it relates to a question that Amy raised about networks. Um, there were two other net networks that I think are important that they were participating in. One is the classes, and the classes of, uh, uh, was a regional uh, a body that of, of pastors and elders who would meet um, in, in the Frankenthal, was based in Frankenthal, they would meet once a year. Um, but, but Frankfurt's church rarely sent representatives to the classes for reasons that I do not know. Um, but more, more importantly is the correspondence they shared with other, with other reformed congregations in the empire, with Cologne, with Wesel, um, and, um, and Fakental. Um, and in, 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 this, in this correspondence, they're often exchanging money uh, for charity. That relates to the charity question, as well as exchanging orphans, um, helping help moving one orphan from one place to another. Um, because Frankfurt's community is somewhat safer than Cologne's, for instance, Many, many, many times the, the Cologne church sends them to, uh, sends orphans to Frankfurt where they're a little safer, even if they're underground, they're not gonna be, they're not gonna be um, uh, thrown in jail or something like this. So, um, so those are, that's an, those are other networks uh, within which this, this community is participating that, that I've seen. Thank you, Jesse. Miriam? Maybe uh, the networks of merchants mm -hmm. were, uh, I think, crucial also in uh, poor relief. Mm -hmm. But also in uh, um, well lobbying mm -hmm. to acquire place in Frankfurt society. So these merchants were often extremely rich. And what I found in uh, Frankfurt Religionshandlungen that was if uh, Frankfurt's refugee church. Uh, 
sent requests to the city council, those merchants signed those requests. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, not incidental. Mm -hmm. That was really to uh, put pressure also on the city council to accommodate uh, the continuity of that refugee community in Frankfurt. And I think that it, that it would really be rewarding to do a research project on those reformed merchants and on their networks. And uh, yeah, uh, Peter Grell wrote, of yes. course, on uh, these networks, but I think there is way more to do also on the question how these merchants helped uh, these uh, communities in with, with with simply with their money mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think uh, that one of the conflicts between the french and the dutch refugee communities was about money yeah so uh, they really wanted uh, rich members to become member of their church and not of the other language group uh, it makes sense That's also um, sorry sorry uh, miriam it reminded me of the, the hanau uh, uh, capitulation that's done by the, the most prominent merchants and somehow the Frankfurt Brat is informed of this before it's even finalized they make it they, they let it be known that the that, the, that they're that they're negotiating this treaty with with Hanau um, couple more questions uh, from Carlos Ayer what markers of identity and difference other than religion crop up in daily interactions between Frankfurters and the refugees, culture, behavior, national rivalries? Could these have been more significant sources of tension than religious differences at various times? So there's obviously the linguistic uh, difference is major and there's also where they live in the city. They live uh, proximate to the, uh, initially they live in one, southeast corner of the city um, and that's known and then as far as I can tell they also are um, using one field outside the, the city um, that's that's that, that's their little plot so they're quite isolated and they don't have to put certain seals on their goods as well um, and the and that is another major source of tension so they are basically um, their own little world within a world which makes me think this must have created some, some resentment uh, in that respect. Uh, when they do, when, when the reform community begins to build in Hanau, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Count of Hanau is adamant that the, that, the, that the new city that's being built should be built you know, not, near the, not near the old city because the people in the old city will be jealous. You know, you gotta, mm -hmm. you gotta separate them, but then, then they didn't do it anyway. They built directly against the city wall and immediately there were tensions. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think they are their own little, their, their own little um, Cosmo inside of uh, Frankfurt. Is that, go ahead. Exactly right uh, on that. But I, I, would also, I would also point out uh, both in terms of their, 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 where they live and the language, but I also point out that many of these, maybe most of the community is multilingual. Mm -hmm. um, they can go, they can choose whether they're in the French church or the Dutch church and they speak German just fine. Mm -hmm. um, so um, they're not, in the, in the sense that they're isolated, they're not, they're, they're, they do can form a bubble, but they're not, they don't have to have the ability to interact on, on a daily basis with, with, um, uh, with pe people who are uh, different than them. And some people can move between the French and the Dutch church uh, without any problem. So there's, uh, so that's just a, some additional context for the limits. You, you also make a good point. In the, the Fettmilch Aufstand, there's there are instances. It's evident that 
um, you do have some Frankfurters working in their in their shops. Yeah. Um, so there, you do actually have them employing some Frankfurters. Does the linguistic fluency also apply to the English and the Scots, Jesse, or not so much? I have not studied the English and the Scots. <laughs> you sort of wonder a little bit. <laughs> But they weren't there for, there for very long, right? The, the, the Dutch community and the French community, basically from 1553, there's a little gap, I think, uh, after the period that, that Max looks at. We don't know how many of them stayed after 1552, but, um, but, there, but, but there's a D French, the Dutch and the German community straight, straight from 1553, 1553 and 54 in, into through the, through the rest of the century, into the 17th century. So but the English were there for a re relatively short time. So, but I haven't studied them. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Amy has a question. You mentioned the presence of Anabaptists among the refugee churches. Did the Anabaptists try to gain some recognition for their own worship, and how did the Reformed churches respond? The uh, Anabaptists in several, uh, they uh, are accused of putting up flyers at one point. Uh, they are also accused of preaching. Uh, they're not named, but they're, they're saying that members of your community two men from your community have preached the following things. Um, the list of heresies that they preach is bizarre. Um, it does not line up with, uh, it, it has all kinds of, of, of heinous heretical things, but they are labeled as uh, Anabaptist. Um, and the, uh, the consistory records uh, are adamant that they need to cooperate with the city authorities. There can be no place for these people. Um, in the in the community. Mm -hmm. Wow, we have covered a lot of ground. Are there other questions? Anyone who hasn't had a chance yet to ask a question? I'll just wait a minute and see if anyone else types anything in. Um, but we've covered a lot of ground and this is this is great. I'm so glad we're, we're able to do this session. And uh, Max, I hope it's helpful in terms of just you very, getting very a chance helpful. to air out some of your ideas and, and get some feedback. I think that's great. Um, Unless there's anybody else, I'm just going to make a couple of announcements at this point. And the first is to say that we have more sessions booked. Um, uh, don't worry about writing these down because we'll be emailing you. But just so you know, we have two more webinars already scheduled. Uh, Tuesday, March 22nd at 1 p.m. with Hal Parker. He has a new book out called Global Calvinism. You'll all want to be there for that. And then May 19th at 1 p.m. with Ward Holder. He has a new book, uh, Calvin and the Christian Tradition. The subtitle is Scripture, Memory, and the Western Mind, and that will be very good as well. And then uh, Jim West and I are still in conversation to set up another one about Bullinger and the book that Jim West is editing. Jim, you're co-editing that with, let's hope he's still here. Jim, are you Jim West? Are you still here? Yeah, he may have gone out. No, I think he went out. Um, I think think it's with Donald McKim, but I don't want to swear to it. I'll check and make sure. Uh, but anyhow, there is this book coming out with Jim West on Bullinger, and so we'll try and fit that one in as well. Um, and then the earlier announcement I made where not everyone was here yet, um, the International Calvin Congress, which meets every four years, is actually going to meet now in July of 2023, and is going to meet in Grand Rapids, and there will be more information on that forthcoming. So, but for now, mark your calendars for late July 2023, and the the topic there actually overlaps with this one because it's meant that overall topic, although you're not restricted to coming to talk only on that, uh, is Calvin, uh, religious refugees and exile. So that's just the theme we're going with for that for that conference. So at this point, it's simply my delight and pleasure to thank Max, 
and Jesse and Miriam for an outstanding uh, session. It's been so good to be able to do this um, and so good to see so many of you here. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being part of this and we hope to see you at our next session. Thank you so much, Karine. Terrific. Thanks again, everyone. Oh, thank you, Karine. Hey, great. Good to see you. Karine.